Just over a hundred years ago, when a few people had immense wealth, and then there was everybody else, a great union sprang up, the IWW. And then came the Iron Heel. And you know what? The union movement is back with us again. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. At least in theory, one of the things that makes America exceptional in the world is a free market economy. As opposed to other older, more traditional countries, this vast land has presented opportunities to get ahead, open to all. Again, I said, at least in theory where places like European countries had long established classes from legally defined and protected nobility and royalty all the way down to peasants who had little, if any, education and were stuck in that economic status for generation after generation. We, Americans, on the other hand, had freedom for all. Anyone with ambition and perseverance could make it in America. That's myth, of course. Then there's reality, which came into view very clearly in the late 19th century. There was neither a ceiling nor a floor. On one hand, people were forced to work more than 10 hours a day, seven days a week, with no health care or safety net whatsoever. Meanwhile, at the same time, a few at the other end made limitless, unfathomable money and effortlessly pulled all the strings of government. What a surprise. This arrangement upset some people. <laughs> Movements arose. Politically, the reaction to this Gilded Age was the progressive age in the early 20th century, spurred on by such books as The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which revealed the horrendous working conditions, and public anger was so whipped up, politicians had to do something. There was public anger, a movement that's really important. It's essential. History shows that movements are the only way to make actual political change. In his new book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers, our guest author, Ahmed White, opens our eyes to a movement that many of us, even those of us on the left, may have forgotten about. No, it's not the AFL, nor the CIA, nor the IBEW, uh, nor a host of other trade unions, but what they then called one big union, open to all workers, black, white, men, women, immigrants, often shunned by those other more establishment and acceptable unions. It was the IWW, the International Workers of the World, and arguably the most radical union in American history, which met its demise through truly historic repression. Thus, the title of this book, Under the Iron Heel. The IWW is a legacy that, though largely forgotten, continues to shape the labor movement to this day. From the early 20th century of sweatshops and fetid meat processing plants today's, to today's Big Brother eyes everywhere at places like 
Amazon, maintaining an ever-present watch over every inch of their warehouses and distribution centers, millions of Americans are spending hours in their cars on highways that look like parking lots. They're doing jobs that many of those behind the wheel for so many hours every day actually hate but feel trapped. Is that freedom? Is that American exceptionalism? Is that uh, what we love about America? Or is the iron heel our guest will speak about still here? Now, only much more subtle. The impact of the IWW today is exemplified by what one reviewer of this book sees as the a profoundly anti-labor system with a very successful collaboration between the state and capital to outlaw and crush solidarity. Oh, it sounds terribly familiar, and it's powerful indeed. Where is the spirit of the IWW? Oh, it ain't dead yet. Mm-mm. Our guest today is Ahmed White, a graduate of Yale Law School. Uh, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, and this will be an interesting discussion. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm quite happy to join you. So I, Ahmed White is a graduate of the, as I say, of the Yale Law School and is now the Nicholas Rosenbaum Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Boulder, nice town, where he teaches labor and criminal law. He's the author of numerous articles and book chapters on legal and labor issues. He's also the author of The Last Great Strike, Little Steel, The CIO, and The Struggle, Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us uh, today, Ahmed White. Uh, America has always been more aspirational than real. President Lincoln talked of it, the, the better angels of our nature. As wars have been fought, as vast injustice has prevailed on so many people in so many ways, was there something about the world of the early 1900s that, that laid bare the origins of the nation as it is today and you thought important and useful for us to know? Oh, yes, indeed. Um... And you touched on a number of uh, a number of those things already. This was a time of extraordinary change, economic change, demographic change um, in in this country uh, that saw the rise of industrial capitalism and its consolidation uh, in a country that, until the Civil War, uh, had been largely agricultural and kind of on the margins of of the global capitalist economy. By 1900, um, that was no longer true, uh, as America became quickly the dominant economy in the world. Uh, it also became a thoroughly capitalist economy with, with all that that entailed in the way of inequality and insecurity and the conflicts that flowed from that. And this gave rise to the industrial workers of the world, and it also gave rise to the repression that this organization endured. Well, what kind of unionism was there before the IWW? When, when did the IWW get founded? What made this union so unique and, <laughs> frankly, frightening to the powers that were? Yes. So uh, the modern labor movement in this country arose after the Civil War. It was, um, it was well-developed uh, by uh, the turn of the century. Uh, there's no no doubt about that, um, but it was in many ways uh, quite conventional in uh -huh. 
its aspirations in its ideology. And it also, with some notable exceptions, uh, tended to focus on organizing um, skilled workers to the exclusion uh. of unskilled workers. And what that also meant was uh, an inattention, with some exceptions, but a, an inattention to the plight of many immigrant workers, of black mm-hmm. workers, um, of women workers. Uh, these were the circumstances out of which the IWW arose. It was founded in Chicago in the summer of 1905 with the express aim of organizing these unorganized workers, of organizing the industrial working class without regard for all of those things, skill, ethnicity, sex, uh, race, um, that sort of thing. And it also had an explicitly radical agenda. It's, uh, it's, idea, its founding idea, was to organize these workers, improve working conditions, but ultimately uh, use the organization of these workers, or direct this organization at um, a revolutionary social change. The idea was uh, a massive general strike. that Once you'd organized the entire industrial working class, or most of it, you could call a massive uh, nationwide, even worldwide, general strike, and that would be used to bring the capitalists to their knees, to force them to relinquish the means of production uh, and put an end to what the IWW called a wage-labor system. The wage-labor system, an end to that. Yeah, interesting how, how that was sort of... Well, it, it sort of served as chains, and I think one of, one of the uh, phrases that was used back then, uh, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. And how, you know, I, I'm curious, there's so much to talk about with regard to the IWW. Um, how did you come to write this book, and, and why now? Uh, Who's the audience, too? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I developed an interest in uh, this organization more than 20 years ago, and it happened to coincide uh, with moving out west to Boulder uh, and, um, and, and developing a, a kind of fascination with, uh, with migratory agricultural workers uh, who, it turns out, uh, formed the core of the membership of the IWW uh, when it rose to prominence in the late 19-teens. Uh, into the 19 um, into the 1920s, uh, and that interest also aligned with the fact I was a labor law uh, professor, among other things, uh, with an interest in criminal law. Uh, much of the repression the IWW endured was uh, through the workings of the criminal justice system. Um, and I'm also from um, a, a family of activists, and it turns out a, a a farming family, and so all of those things fitted me to be interested in the IWW. I think more particularly, um, I decided to write this book about seven, eight years ago, um, in part because uh, I kind of developed a more pointed interest in the question of repression, the question of uh, the First Amendment and freedom of speech and freedom of association. Uh, and likewise in the history of progressivism and the ways in which progressivism um, both supported what the IWW was trying to do, but also in a lot of uh, significant ways um, underlay the repression that the union uh, endured. And, and so many of these issues uh, which you just addressed are, boy, certainly 
stay with us today. No question about it. And uh, there, there's we we rarely learn from history. And I I forget who the the uh, origin of the phrase is. The one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. It's important. <laughs> is important to learn from history, and yet we so rarely do. And I have to ask, of course, the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, what the, 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 the word wobblies, what's the origin? As, as, what's the best uh, guess as to the origin of the, the phrase wobblies for the IWW? That's a great question. I've been asked that before, and I, I, <laughs> I have to confess, I, I don't know. I, you know, at one time, uh, I thought I knew. I, I think a lot of people thought they knew. There are various explanations, one of which involved a, a not-so-pleasant um, account of, of, of how IWW uh, was mispronounced by, um, right. by, by workers of Asian origin. Right. Uh, but, but I'm not sure that's true and, and have been told as much. It, it just remains a kind of mystery. And it's interesting because it was never really a, a, a pejorative term. It, it, was, right. it was used right. uh, by everyone in the Union's enemies, the, 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 uh, the members of the organization itself, its allies. It's quite interesting, uh, and that it would remain mysterious. I think makes it all the more, uh, all the more interesting. It it is indeed, and and the more you read about history, the more interesting history gets. Because especially, and 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 as we know, in the world of twenty twenty three, the the right wing in this country, boy, they really don't want us to know about history. They want to keep it hidden from our history. Uh, they want to keep us. Uh, they, the most important bits of history, uh, they want to keep erased, and they have largely been erased. Um, but I, I, I do. You know, it started. The, the labor movement did start after the uh, the Civil War, and aside from President Lincoln, another Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower. As he left office, he, he coined the new, the, the new term at the time, the military-industrial complex, to which we now add the word congressional. It's the military-industrial-congressional complex. In his excellent book, War Against the War, Michael Kazin uh, made it clear that the majority of Americans around 19, in the 19-teens, majority of Americans and Woodrow Wilson himself at first opposed U.S. entry into the European war. This included labor. Uh, unions had been largely outspoken against imperialism, at least left-leaning uh, unions, because it's it's an, inter- an international movement, and they wanted workers all over the world to, to join together. Until 1917, when the heads of the big banks in the United States got nervous about their loans to the Allies in the First World War. How did the First World War complicate the IWW's position? As, as with World War II, uh, it did create a lot of union jobs. And in, in the run-up, uh, well, well, let's ask about that. How did it complicate the IWW's position? Yeah, so that that's right. The war changed everything for labor in this country and created these kind of conflicts and complications. Um, you're quite right that uh, many leftists, uh, the left wing of the Socialist Party, uh, many in labor, including the IWW, 
regarded the war as when it broke out in 1914, and quite rightly, as nothing but a senseless, senseless slaughter of uh, of working people. Um, but on the other hand, the war is uh, a, a great stimulus to the economy, and uh, it, it dramatically improved the circumstances in which unions operated. It created labor shortages. It cut off uh, what was a great flow of um, of immigrants from Europe that that dried up almost entirely, and it, it created um, considerable demands for the things that workers produced in this country, and that that all um, put organized labor in a more advantageous position. Many unions um, embraced the circumstance and, and became uh, strong supporters of the war, including um, um, many figures yeah. in the AFL. Um, the IWW was different. The IWW uh, adhered to uh, a position in opposition to the war, uh, and it, it tempered that rhetoric a little bit, uh, in 1917, once the United States entered the conflict, but it remained opposed to the war, and that proved decisive in uh, justifying uh, much of the repression that the organization endured. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about a, a very important but unfortunately little-known phase of uh, American early 20th century history, and it has a legacy which really is continuing to this day, and it's important for people to know about. Our guest author is uh, today is author Ahmed White, who's got a new book out, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Uh, and in the, in the run-up to uh, American participation in that First World War, 20 states and a number of cities enacted criminal syndicalism laws. Tell us about that, and to what effect? So these are fascinating and in some ways terrifying uh, statutes that um, were first enacted in Idaho in uh, the spring of 1917 uh, for the express purpose of destroying the industrial workers of the world, of, of making it a crime yeah. to be a member of the organization. Oh, my. And did it in a clever way. Uh, the statute didn't say if you're in the IWW, you are therefore a criminal. That would have been unconstitutional, and the people behind these laws knew that. Right. And so they came up with a kind of subterfuge, a very clever one. They made it a crime, these laws did, uh, to advocate in what they called industrial or political change by means of crime, sabotage, violence, that sort of thing, and also made it a crime to be a member of an organization that advocated that kind of um, social uh, change. Wow. A crime to be a member of that organization. Boy, that's that's clever. You're right. I mean, they have to... Phew, the, the, the forces of the, of the far right, the anti-democratic with a small d right, uh, have to be creative, and they are if they want to be uh, repressed, uh, repressive. And, you know, other countries aside from the U.S., uh, they don't hide their iron heel. Uh, I mean, the Soviets, for example, they, they never, you know, made any, any secret of, of having an iron heel and crushing various movements. But here it has to be done a bit more cleverly. Uh, so I, I read one of the, the, the books I've read about the early 20th century, which I, I find is a fascinating period, 
is uh, Rebel Cinderella by, by Adam Hochschild, who wrote about uh, this woman who, again, is very little known, Rose Pastor Stoke, who had been a, she had been working in one of those awful factories, in a cigar-making factory, rolling cigars every day. I mean, terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, and, and she became a, uh, a, a labor leader. Uh, and it, it, where she was was common to a lot of people, especially immigrants, of which she was one. Uh, I mean, we're all immigrants here, except for those uh, indigenous uh, uh, descendants, of which there are very few, unfortunately. Uh, so please, if you would, tell us about how the owners of industry perceived their relationship, their appropriate relationship with workers in the early 20th century. How did the government officiate that tension? Yes, so this was a fascinating period indeed. It, in the decades after the Civil War, you might say that this country and the, the owners of capital and the the, the, um, the, the political class, the legal class, uh, had to contend with um, the, the question, what's going to be the condition of labor uh, in this country in the wake of the Civil War? Um, and they addressed that in an interesting way. Uh, they, on the one hand, endorsed this idea uh, that declared workers to be essentially free agents. Um, this was the notion of free labor as it as it came to proliferate in the post-Civil War period, um, meaning that workers were on their own. They uh -huh. were uh, subject to uh, what was called... Uh, the freedom of contract, with, with no sense of irony, uh, subject to the doctrine of uh, so-called employment at will. Uh, what it basically meant was that workers were not entitled to much, if anything, in the way of legal protections as they navigated um, uh, the workplace and the, the many rigors uh, of working in industrial America. The contradiction there is that at the same time, the political class, the capitalist class, uh, the, the legal elite in this country also, um, with few exceptions, endorsed the idea that capital could use its power um, to shape the terms of exploitation in the workplace. What I mean by that is um, to use force often mm. uh, crush organizations like the Industrial Workers of the World, not just the Industrial Workers of the World, many other unions when their workers went out on strike. And right. it's that contradiction that accounts for the fact that this was not only an incredibly violent time in American labor relations, but a time when it was commonplace for, um, for uh, the, the state itself to intervene very directly and very forcefully in labor disputes. Um, sheriffs, deputies, militias, mm -hmm. sometimes U.S. Army itself, uh, to put down strikes, um, force workers back to work, that sort of thing. So you have, on the one hand, this notion of free labor, uh, freedom of contract, all of that. Mm. On the other hand, you have a situation where when workers organize, uh, and particularly when they organize effectively or organize behind a radical purpose like the IWW, they were subject to something that bore very little resemblance to freedom. Um, naked force. Mm. Yeah, that that whole phrase, 
em- employment at will and and the the notion that that uh, all workers are free agents it amazes me how widely that is still believed and still held and people just accept that as as well that's the way it is they don't have to work there if they don't want to they don't have a lot of choice actually there's i mean what kind of freedom is there if if you don't have a job you starve what kind of freedom is there if you if you don't have a job you don't have any health care uh, it's boy, really one-sided freedom at best, and it's an interesting history. And the the very fact that you know people still adhere to this notion of you know it's just employment at will. Uh, that that was what the IWW was was working with way back over a hundred years ago, and is still the case. Who? You know, most of the listeners, I think, even people on the left, and I think the left is fairly strong these days, and I'm pleased to say that. Uh, it's certainly not a communist left or anything like that. Uh, but they may have heard of some of the uh, leaders. Some There have been some famous people that came out of the IWW. Who might some of those be? Oh, yeah. So probably the most famous was the union's foremost leader during this period, a guy named um, William Dudley Hayward. Big uh, Bill. Big Bill Hayward. Yes. That's right, Big Bill Hayward, who uh, was um, a founding delegate um, in 1905 when the IWW was established. In fact, he called the convention to order. Uh, he was a Westerner um, from Utah. Uh, he was a miner, and he was, when he helped found the IWW, already a veteran of some vicious labor struggles as uh, an official with uh, the Western Federation of Miners, um, a militant uh, union of so-called hard rock miners um, that was formed um, in the West. And that was um, when the IWW was founded, its largest affiliate. Uh, And again, Big Bill led the union through this most tumultuous period. He was the foremost leader of the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other famous people associated with the union. Um, <clears throat> one of them is Ralph Chaplin, uh, who joined the union a little bit later. He was a little bit younger than some of these other figures. He was um, an accomplished poet and uh, and songwriter. Many people know uh, the song Solidarity Forever. Oh, yes. Uh, that's Ralph Chaplin. Um and who stayed with the IWW for uh, for some years after its uh, after its demise? Um, there's Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, um, yes. the, the so-called Rebel Girl, who was um, not not quite a girl, but certainly a very young woman when she um, uh, began working with the union uh, and emerged for a time as one of its uh, foremost agitators or organizers. Uh, later, became a prominent figure in uh, the communist party, like um, a, a fair number of uh, IWWs. Sure. Um, and then there were people on the margins of the union who were also famous uh, for their membership. Uh, Helen Keller, I like to point out, ah. was uh, for a time a member of the IWW. Needless to say, an extremely impressive person. Um, Roger Baldwin, uh-huh. uh, the founder of the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, at least the, the foremost founder right. of the American Civil Liberties Union, was uh, for, uh, I think, a year or so, uh, a member of the IWW. So it, it was a famous organization in its day, 
and it um, and so were so were some of the people associated with it. Yeah, indeed, and it, and really, if you think about its history, it it whether we know it or not, it's part of our identity in the world today. It really is. How any guess as to? I mean, the population in the United States now is unbelievably huge, uh, 330 million or so. I don't know what the population was around 1905 or so, but about how many members or people affiliated with the IWW were there at its peak? Any oh, that's, and that's a good, that's a good question. Um, and it, it has been, it's one that's been difficult for researchers yeah, to yeah. answer in any definite way because, uh, because of the nature of the IWW, when it came into its... Um, its its prominence, its its apogee in the late nineteen teens. Mm-hmm. Um, it did so by organizing migratory workers, mainly uh-huh. west of the Mississippi. Um, these were people often with, uh, as they say, no fixed abode. Uh, they travel around the country working in the main industries where the union was successful in organizing. I mentioned earlier uh, agriculture; that was one. Also, uh, lumber. Uh, construction, oil, and uh, maritime shipping. Uh, because of the migratory migratory nature of these um, of these workers, uh, their membership was often transient as well. Um, they would um, join the union, stay paid up for a while, drift away, travel across the country, pick up another job, maybe take out another uh, another membership in the organization, maybe not, maybe be in arrears in their dues. Maybe not, and so that's made it difficult for researchers right. to pin down exactly how many people were in the union. Um, the best guess um, is uh, my best guess is that that number reached uh, over a hundred thousand mm-hmm. in uh, early 1917, and, and maybe significantly more than that. But I would add um, that number, hundred thousand, would. Would, would be the number of people who were in the organization at any particular time. And that's a little bit misleading uh, in light of what I just said. In 1917, several hundred thousand people had passed through the organization. And many of those people, even if they weren't current in their dues or their membership, uh-huh. remain loyal to the union. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the effective membership of the IWW was probably quite a bit more than a, a hundred thousand. Um, but it, but again, it, it remains unclear. And another reason its membership numbers remain unclear is, ironically, because of the repression the union endured. Uh, in uh, the fall of 1918, the federal government moved against the organization with dozens and dozens of raids on union headquarters, including the main headquarters in Chicago. They seized tons of union records. And those, as near as anyone um, can determine, were destroyed. And uh, so there went uh, a trove of information that could have been used to answer the kind of question uh, that you, that you just posed, and that that many of us continue to wonder about. Oh yeah, it's but it's still uh, membership, and you know, people didn't have money. It largely appealed to uh, people who didn't have money, people who worked in you know horrible jobs like mines. I mean, I cannot imagine working in the mines. Ugh. The the country depended on it. I mean, coal was huge. The the the, the you know industrialized uh, world depended on coal for a long time. 
Whew. Again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, some important history, the IWW. Our, our guest today is author of a new book, uh, Ahmed White. It's Under the Iron Heel, the Wobblies, and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. And the year 1917 keeps coming up. Uh, lots of things happened in 1917. Uh, the Espionage Act of 1917 is, oddly enough, today for the first time being employed to actually root out espionage. Uh, it's it's amazing how it, you know, it was called the Espionage Act, but it didn't really have a lot to do with rooting out spies. <laughs> how was it used against the IWW and its members in that initial Red Scare the Palmer Raids that Adam Hochschild, again, writes about in his 2022 book, American Midnight. What did that uh, Espionage Act of 1917, how was it look like the repression there, the Iron Heel there? In what ways was the national suspicion and, frankly, hate, racist hate of immigrants used? Yes, so the Espionage Act was enacted in the spring and early summer of 19. 19- 17, and it had some provisions that dealt with maybe what you might call traditional espionage. But it also contained Title I of this statute, uh, some provisions that were designed with the idea of repression, of repressing the IWW and also other leftist uh, organizations and pacifist groups that opposed the war. And the way it did that was clever, not unlike the criminal syndicalism laws we talked about earlier, it made it a crime to oppose the war, to interfere with the war effort. Oh, um, right. hmm. And this was used uh, against the IWW by essentially presenting the union as a kind of conspiracy to do just that. Hmm. So in 1917, the union was at its height. It was leading hundreds of strikes uh, all over the country, but especially in the West. Some of these were in industries important to the war effort. Um, there was nothing, though, illegal about striking. There was no law that said that unions couldn't strike. The AFL was leading, uh, or during this period, led probably quite a bit more strikes in these industries. But the AFL wasn't a radical organization in the crosshairs of powerful people. Uh, so what the federal government did, and what federal prosecutors did, pushed along by powerful Western politicians and Western capitalists, uh, was to indict um, ultimately about 200 IWWs uh, on the theory that they had conspired to undermine the war effort by means of these strikes and by means of a campaign of sabotage that was, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say entirely fabricated, but largely fabricated. And the charge was conspiracy. It was especially easy to prove. The government didn't have to demonstrate in prosecuting these people that they had actually done anything uh, other than agree among themselves to support this campaign of strikes and sabotage that would uh, that would interfere with the war effort. Um, that that's pretty much all they had to demonstrate, and it was very effective. And ultimately, uh, about 160 or so uh, wobblies were convicted and sent to federal prison, and mm. most of them in three uh, mass trials in Chicago, in um, Sacramento, and in Kansas City. Mm. Mass trials. Gee, that uh, makes me think of other countries. Not very subtle iron heels. Uh, 
tough stuff, but it, it was it was real. There are celebrities, personalities here in the United States, and people really look up to str- people who demonstrate strength. The Wobblies' response to this campaign, you say, is a study in resilience and courage as they endured extraordinary acts of cruelty and deprivation both in and out of prison. Say more, please, about the character of these those men and women. I'm very happy to say something about that because that was one of the things that that captivated me in writing this book. And it's an overused term, but but that, that inspired me in writing this book. The, the courage and determination that these people showed was is unexceeded, I think, in American history. Uh, it really was quite extraordinary. Um, these are folks who, in dozens and dozens of cases, uh, volunteered to be prosecuted, uh, volunteered to be sent to prison, and, and once in prison uh, for things like criminal syndicalism or violating the Espionage Act, that sort of thing, often, and again, dozens of other cases, um, refused offers of clemency, um, mm. parole or something like that, on the theory that, um, on the grounds that either they hadn't done anything wrong, mm-hmm. and they would accept nothing less than a full pardon, or even more remarkably, on the grounds that their fellow workers, their fellow right. inmates, their fellow wobblies were not right. being released. and They wouldn't leave prison until they were also released. And this happened time and time again. It, it really was quite remarkable. And in prison as well, they often led protests. Um, protested the way they were treated. They were sometimes singled out for um, for extra punishment. And they did this over and over again. They struck in prison. They were thrown in the dungeons, in, uh. in the, uh, the, hole, the dark holes. There were various names for these, these horrendous um, mm. punishment units in these mm. prisons. And they did it time and time again. Uh, it, it really is uh, something to behold. And I'm I think, careful in the book to note that um, they didn't all demonstrate this, and every person has a breaking point, and Mm. and many people were broken. Mm. But I think it's all the more of a testament to their strength uh, and their humanity to to recount both sides of this, Um, the determination as well as the vulnerability uh, that these people showed. As I said, it's it's something um, unexceeded in American history. Wow, incredible. And there were, among these people who were came in and out of the IWW, there are a lot of different people, individuals. <clears throat> and everywhere the IWW was active, it confronted it was confronted not only from without, but from within as well. It was infiltrated by government agents, company operatives, private detectives. Uh, to what effect? Yes, so this is a, a tried-and-true uh, technique of, of, of repression, uh, and it was evident in what happened to the IWW, uh, not least in uh, the big federal trials that I mentioned, where in one instance the union members were astonished to discover uh, that one of their um, right. one of their co-defendants was a government spy all along. Um, there were, in fact, 
a small core of what were called professional witnesses. These were IWW turncoats who had been offered, they had been uh, arrested and charged with, uh, I think, criminal syndicalism, uh, and then offered by the government um, the chance to avoid, well, criminal syndicalism and espionage act violations, and then offered by the government the opportunity to avoid prosecution if they worked with the government. Again, this is a common practice. What was a bit uncommon uh, was the way these figures, two of them in particular, guys named uh, John Diamond and Elmer Coots, um, testified in dozens and dozens of um, Espionage Act and and criminal conspiracy, I mean criminal syndicalism trials uh, Mm. during this period, and they were paid to do so. Uh, this was this was devastating to the union um, because again, whether they were being prosecuted for criminal syndicalism or under the Espionage Act, the key to the government's cases was always the same thing: prove that the union was a criminal organization, uh, a seditious outfit, and then all they had to prove beyond that was that the defendants were members of the union and by the workings of criminal syndicalism laws or the conspiracy doctrine that was used with the Espionage Act, that was enough uh, to convict these people. So it it worked like clockwork, and it it was quite devastating. And these uh, goons got paid. They they, they would testify often. That was their their job. The the, the (laughs) two guys I mentioned, Diamond and Coots, they had no other means of support. That, That was their job, and they did quite well at it for several years at least. Oh, my goodness. And part of the legacy of, of the IWW lived on through the 20th century. It was, you know, uh, a, a tough century in many ways for, for the left. Uh, it took a lot of hits in the 20th century. They, the IWW inspired, frankly, some of my American heroes, the men and women who volunteered to fight fascists in the Spanish Civil War, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, uh, which was 1936 through 39. And the IWW legacy inspired them, the bravery, the fighting for for what they considered uh, the right thing and and, and for truth and justice. Uh, And how did... There were eventually progressive reforms in the 20th century. They're like trying to be rolled back now, one by one by one, by the Republicans who are far to the right of any Republican, well, most Republicans of the 20th century. There were health and safety reforms that did come about in the 20th centuries. And in some industries, there were some new wage restrictions and hours of work regulations. How did that these progressive reforms impact the perceived need for unions? Yeah, I think those reforms did go some distance in blunting the appeal of the kind of radicalism that the IWW was preaching. Um, capitalism became still predatory and exploitative, but certainly in the post-war period, the mid-20th century, was uh, a lot more humane in its um, in its in its treatment of workers than it had been uh, 30 or 40 or 50 years earlier, and that's not to say there isn't um, there isn't room for radicalism anymore. That the, that the radical argument is is completely mooted by these reforms, but it, it did make the IWW's appeal. Um, I think um, 
maybe not quite as salient as it it would otherwise have been. That was the purpose of uh, a lot of these reforms, sure. to blunt the appeal of radicalism. Um, and so that that is part of the story of what um, of of what happened to the IWW and what happened to its brand of unionism. Um, and 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 unionism, I think in general, uh, you know, has a lot of people on the right still say, you know, you got good working conditions. Uh, we're looking out for you. You don't need a union. We're paying you a good wage. Huh. Yeah, well, it happens from time to time. So that there there is that tension that that still goes on, and. Uh, you know, so with things being a little bit better, the you know the uh, the big companies do as little as necessary to uh, uh, avoid unionism. But unionism is is back on the rise. I mean, Starbucks, it's been very exciting. I, I th- this is a period right now where unionism seems to be on the rise again, uh, and, and uh, people you know people are, are recognizing that there is. A, a reason for some degree of solidarity. I don't know if we have real, you know, working class solidarity. There's, there's not. I mean, you know, the the the, the system has uh, sort of scoffed at the idea of a, of a classism in this country at all. You know, there. But when I was growing up in the '50s and '60s, there was a solid working class, a middle class. Uh, as time goes on, and uh, the tax structure. Uh, and in so many ways, there's a few with a lot of wealth, just unbelievable wealth, the hyper-wealthy right now, who have nothing to do with their money but shoot rockets up into space. It's <laughs> bizarre. Uh, and everybody else. So, I don't know, this is an interesting time uh, for, for union organizing. And again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Uh, our guest today is Ahmed White who's got a new book out, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Well, many years after uh, the IWW, The Wobblies, 1969, along comes the Brandenburg versus Ohio decision. The Supreme Court uh, had the repression of Wobblies 50 years prior firmly in mind. Today, Brandenburg, that decision is being denounced by many for frustrating the suppression of radical right-wing organizations, exposing vulnerable groups to harassment and denigration, impeding the prosecution of a certain orange (laughs) ex-president. What does the experience of the IWW have to teach us about the protection and limits of First Amendment rights? This is, you know, I've opened up sort of a can of worms here. Maybe you can uh, figure it out and explain. Oh, yeah, so... You know, I think one one lesson that the Wobblies have, the Wobblies of the early 20th century and what they dealt with, uh, one of the lessons that this organization and experience um, has for workers and activists today is the importance of uh, civil liberties or First Amendment-type protections. Um, And it's in that light that I think it's maybe useful to look past the reasons that people are offering nowadays for rolling back uh, Brandenburg versus Ohio, um, and to see in that the potential risk to everyone, including people on the left. Um, it, it, yeah, it's, it may be appealing to think, well, if we can just get some of these 
folks on the right, or this makes it easier to prosecute Donald Trump for what he said on January 6th, then I'm all for it. A lot of people have that point of view. But I think that's reckless. And I, I think uh, reading what happened to the IWW, again, 100 years ago or so, should give you pause um, in supporting, should give one pause in supporting that kind of agenda. Um, I, I think these rights are critical. Um, First Amendment rights, freedom of speech and association are critical um, to the construction of a vibrant left um, and a vibrant labor movement um, in this country. And they should be defended, even if uh, part of the price of that is that these rights will be used by people on the right. Well, absolutely. I mean, as as, as a civil libertarian myself, I you know, the, the, the freedom of speech is, ex- I mean, this, I don't know what's more important. Freedom of speech is extremely, extremely important. And, you know, there's the there's the uh, the Skokie case where did the Ku Klux Klan have a right to march in Skokie, Illinois? I think they did. I believe, I, I, you know, I really disagree with them, but uh, I defend their right to say it. So this Brandenburg case, I, nobody's heard about that. I hadn't heard about it. What, what, what was that decision, actually, in 1969? So Brandenburg involved uh, criminal syndicalism law in Ohio. Uh, Ohio is one of the states east of the Mississippi that enacted a criminal syndicalism law. It used it against, um, sporadically against various kinds of leftists, a uh, few IWWs, some communists. You mentioned Rose Pastor Stokes. Um, she was part of an early generation of communist organizers who were charged with criminal syndicalism or sedition laws. Anyway, um, Brandenburg was decided, as you noted, in 1969. It didn't involve a leftist at all. It involved uh, a Ku Klux Klan member uh, who put on a kind of publicity stunt in which he denigrated black people and Jews and all of that and was prosecuted uh, under Ohio's law. Basically, what happened is the U.S. Supreme Court, in deciding Brandenburg, um, reread the clear and present danger test or rewrote that test in a way that gave it some teeth. The test had emerged um, in the ninth, in the, the period in which the IWW was being prosecuted um, in cases involving the prosecution of, um, of, of communists and, and, and socialists. And contrary to what a lot of people think, it wasn't a test that did much to protect dissent. It actually was probably more effective at justifying the government's uh, imposition on uh, on dissidents and its restrictions on free rights of free speech and association until Brandenburg. Uh, what the court did in Brandenburg, the U.S. Supreme Court, under the leadership then of Earl Warren, who ironically uh, recounts in his biography that the first case he prosecuted as a young prosecutor in Oakland back in 1920 was a criminal syndicalism case. Well, now in 1969, Earl Warren's court um, essentially rules that you can't prosecute people for criminal syndicalism or similar types of crime unless the danger you say that they present is imminent. Uh-huh. And what that did retroactively was to say that essentially all of these prosecutions of IWWs uh, back in the 19-teens and 1920s uh, would have been unconstitutional. Hmm. 
Good. Well, free speech. Too late for them, but... <laughs> yeah, but, but freedom of speech is exceedingly important. Well, we are now well into the 21st century, and unionism, as I said, is surging. Uh, and, and Amazon, it's driving them nuts. I love it. Uh, Starbucks, and unionism is, is, is more respectable, and it's, it's resurrecting familiar questions that arise every time labor surges. How far might this wave of activism go, and what might happen if it does begin does seem like something radical. Uh, you know, the, the, the young people these days, Generation Z, I guess it is. I don't know what the heck their name is. How might the experience of the IWW a century ago illuminate such questions? Like, what, what, what might happen if, if, you know, if people start thinking about uh, radicalism and, and start uh, maybe buying into it and, and promoting it? On the one hand, I, I think the IWW is relevant today, and it still exists. The organization is well, yeah. is, uh, is is still around. It's not, I think, even its most ardent uh, members would admit it's not. It's not oh. like it was in the early nineteen, um, early twentieth century. It still exists, but I think the union's legacy, on the one hand, uh, is an important source of inspiration, um, and can be that uh, for young workers and activists. Uh, today, I think what every labor movement needs is uh, what the writer James Jones called in talking about the IWW uh, a vision, uh, a vision we don't uh, we don't possess uh, so much today, uh, a, a kind of radical vision, um, a, a belief in something more than, um, than 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 better working conditions. Those are important. But something more than that, a vision in a, in a new and different society. And I think the IWW, whether one believes in its model of unionism or not, uh, its history certainly offers that. Uh, on the other hand, or I should say at the same time, um, what happened to the IWW should also be viewed in cautionary terms. Uh-huh. I think the moment any organization begins to pose or seem to pose a real challenge to the interest and values of powerful people, powerful capitalists, powerful politicians in this country. Uh, the moment that happens, those people are liable uh, to be uh, treated in the same repressive way that the IWW was. Mm. I think that is a fact of uh, the world we live in, and uh, that's something people need to be prepared for. Uh, if your organizing becomes really effective, especially if it's accompanied by uh, by by a, a, a radical agenda, and people begin to take that seriously, begin to view it as a real threat to them, then they will respond accordingly. And I think it's important for people to realize that. I don't say that to discourage anyone, right. but I, I know what these IWWs endured. Uh, I know by family experience what people in this civil rights era endured, and um, it's nothing to sniff at. Um, it's, it's, it's nothing to, to treat lightly uh, what can happen. Well, it's a, pe- people admire the bravery for a reason, because it does take, take some courage. People have paid very high prices, to put it mildly, for speaking out, for speaking for, for justice and fairness and equality. I mean, the, the violence is 
Uh, there's just so much of it. Uh, it. It does take some bravery, and you can look at so many examples in history. And, you know, if, as you say, Ahmed, you know, if it becomes seen as a threat, yikes, look out. It could get, uh, it could get dangerous. But uh, it does make change. As That's right. And, and, it, and, and the world we live in is already a dangerous world. <laughs> uh, and, and the path we're on, I think, as the Wobblies foresaw a century ago, the path we're on is, is a road to ruin. Um, a, mm-hmm. a spiritual ruin of alienation, of ecological destruction, of war, um, of immiseration. Um, it's not like the status quo has much uh, going for it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Look at what the status quo has gotten us so far. And uh, yeah, it, it uh, you know, it, it, it's so much easier to just, oh, just keep your head down, keep going. And I have, you know, friends, black friends who were taught, oh, just keep your head down. Oh, no, that's not how you make change. That's not how you bring justice. You, you stand up and it doesn't have to be everybody. Not everybody has to do it. But standing up for what you believe in, standing up for something different, even if it seems to be radical at the time. I mean, you look throughout history and those things that seemed to be radical at the time eventually became, uh, you know, established. Fascinating discussion. It's, it, people need to learn about this. Uh, the, uh, the book is called Under the Iron Heel. Uh, all right, real quickly, how did you get that title, Under the Iron Heel? That's pretty, uh, uh, that, that paints quite a picture. That's taken directly from um, uh, Jack London's novel, uh, uh. The Iron Heel. Uh, and, and that's not, simply by coincidence, there's actually a, a pretty significant connection between Jack London and yes. the Wobblies. I think, in short, um, the Wobblies were a crucial influence on Jack London, and Jack London, including Jack London's writing in his book uh, Under the Iron Heel, or rather the Iron Heel, was a crucial influence on the Wobblies. And so there's, there's, a, there's a, a close relationship there, and I thought... Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, if I didn't take the opportunity to to draw that connection very explicitly, including in the title of the book itself. And I would have been remiss had the topic of Jack London not come up. <laughs> I'm glad it did. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ahmed White. His book is Under the Iron Heel: The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Who is the publisher? University of California Press. Ah, great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to have been here. May justice prevail. Could happen. Thank you. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Till the day I die. There once was a union made. She never was afraid of the goons and the ginks and the company finks and the deputy sheriff that made the raid. She went to the union hall when a meeting it was called. When the Legion boys come around, she always stood her ground. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. 
please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.